proclaimed in the middle of his earthly ministry that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The gates of liberal administrations, the gates of godless and pagan thinking, the gates of those who reject the Bible cannot stop Christ from building his church. You do it, you've done it down through the centuries. And Lord, we're witnesses of that. We are your people, we are your children. We are the family of God by your choice and not ours. And so we gladly now worship you as our Father, Son as our Savior, the Spirit as our mediator, so that we can be in your presence continually. Lord, we thank you for this church, Lord, that you have raised up a local church here in Ormond Beach, Florida. We thank you that you and your sovereign grace decided this long ago. Many you have chose to save through this ministry. Many you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we humbly ask you to keep using us, Lord. Cause us to be faithful, those members that are here, faithful to be loving and reach out and grow themselves, Lord. And may you be glorified by all that we say and, say and do here. Lord, we think of our missionaries across the, across the globe, Lord. What a joy to talk to some of them this week, Lord. Though things are difficult, they are encouraged because they too believe that Christ promises to build his church. And so we ask that you would bless them and strengthen them, give them favor, Lord, and certainly protect them. Do pray for the church in Ukraine and Afghanistan. Both ministries are thriving under difficult situations. We pray that you would protect the leadership, the membership, and cause them to be able to gather in even the smallest ways, Lord, we pray for that protection. Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask that you would plunge truth deep into our hearts, Lord, that would cause effectual change in us, Lord, to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, we find a new context. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is really the highlighting overarching principle is Christian liberties. What can a Christian do and what can a Christian not do? Some people might address it that way. But that's how Paul's going to address it. Paul is going to address it through the power of the gospel and the care of one another. The care of one another. Liberties we may have freedom to do could cause someone to stumble. Paul uses this word stumbling block several times. One, he uses it in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather determine this, not to put any stumbling block, uh, excuse me, obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. And even in our passage here in chapter 8, verse 9, he says this, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So this is one of the main themes he's going to hit on, freedom that we have as Christians. But do we use that freedom to glorify the Lord or cause others to stumbling the stumbling block is an interesting word. It's, it's not so much what highlights an offense to somebody. Some people think it's you've offended somebody. That's not what the word means. It means that you've urged them to practice or participate in something that causes them to sin against their conscience. That's what that means. 
And we know as Christians that the Spirit of God affects our conscience through the Word of God. And so Paul's very concerned about this church that is struggling to obey Jesus already and how they're handling their Christian liberties. But there's a larger question that Paul wants to deal with. And that's what we're going to deal with the first three verses here. That's the question of knowledge versus love. Knowledge versus love. So in chapters 8 through 10, Paul's going to tackle that this way. First, he's going to give a very detailed exposition of how a Christian is to handle worldly idolatries, the things that the world loves, without causing someone else to stumble or sin against their conscience. And he's going to do this. He's going to motivate them through the love of Christ to be careful of this. Then he's going to show how a Christian is to understand their involvement with family and friends who are still in the pagan world. We're going to see that through this text as well as over the next few weeks. He's going to remind us that he has the authority from God as an apostle. God has sent him. Apostles, there are no more. Um, there were these apostles given by Jesus who were disciples, and then Paul and, and um, uh Matthias were at it after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this was it. And, he, and he'll highlight his authority as apostle, but what he'll highlight more in the text, as we'll see, is the power of the gospel to motivate us. Paul would much rather have us motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ than by his authority as an apostle. And then finally, we'll see that Paul takes a very strong stance against Christians going into pagan temples and engaging in pagan worship. And he'll, that will really be practical as we get into the issues of the day that Christians are constantly pressured to be a part of. But before that, the Corinthians seem to be asking him another question. They're asking questions about knowledge. And this brings up Paul's first and greatest concern before he deals with his issues, which we'll see in the next couple of weeks, is this issue of knowledge versus love. See, they believed that they had knowledge. In fact, they believed that the center of all things was knowledge, wisdom. We've seen that earlier in chapter 1. And because they have knowledge, now they believe they had freedom and they had authority to exercise and do whatever they wanted to do. And so their knowledge was leading them to integrate with worldly pagan rituals pagan people, and it affected their so-called Christian behavior. So Paul's going to bring this strong, biblical, opposing view again to this church in Corinth. This church in Corinth reminds us that they're not, they're probably not the example church. So we don't look to Corinth for its doctrine within its church, but the doctrine that Paul teaches them as it goes along. Now, Paul will see that their knowledge is only partially correct because they're missing the main ingredient that a Christian should have, divine love from God. And so their knowledge now has become a problem. And knowledge and love become the basis of this context all the way through the end of this chapter and into the next. And it's interesting, as I studied this, I began to think, I would not have thought that he would have to contrast two words like knowledge and love in order to help this church live rightly before him. 
But Paul's response goes right to the heart. He's going to get right to the heart of the issue. Why they, why they are so uh, strong on knowledge in an unloving church. And we'll see him deal with this as we get into these verses. Number one, knowledge must be in submission to divine love of God. Knowledge must be in submission to the divine love of God. Now notice verse 1. The Bible says here, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, that's going to be one of the contexts, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Well, here we come with another phrase, now concerning. He started this in verse 7, and this means he's big, picking up a, a new sentence, a new context here. And we, if we remember back in the first six chapters, he's dealing with things that he's heard that are going on in Corinth. So from chapter 1 through chapter 6, he deals with factions. Remember, there's factions develop. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, and so forth. He dealt with their love of worldly wisdom. This is what he was hearing back from reports. So he deals with these in the first six chapters. And he, he saw their desire for power and control. They lacked a Christ-centered approach. They rejected the apostles' authority. There was immorality in the church and no church discipline. Chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he deals with lawsuits and the mishandling, the godless way they handled their own bodies and immorality as image bearers of God. And then in chapter 7, he starts to address their letter, right? They were writing back to him, and they were not asking questions like, Paul, we know you're an apostle. Could you help us with this? They're making statements of disagreements with him. And in chapter 7, they disagreed with Paul's view of singleness and marriage. But now he comes to this issue of food offered to idols. And what he does here is he deals with the heart versus the outward form that they seem to be worship, worried about. Now, this issue with food offered to idols is not something new. In fact, it's really important to understand this. The church had dealt with how we deal with the pagan world. In Acts chapter 15, Paul had been out on a missionary journey. He had returned. Him and Barnabas had told the, the council there, which was made up of church elders and, and men there that were leading this birth of this church. And they had reported back, and, and there was pressure upon these Gentiles to do certain things. In fact, there were some that were wanting them to keep the law, but the elders came back and said, no, no, Christ is the end of the law, but there are a few things they need to be careful for. So the Bible has already given instruction. There was already instruction out there for this church, but they were struggling with it. And so the expression of food offered to idols as he, as he makes that comment here is really what he's he, he's using to get to their hearts. But I want to take you back to Acts chapter 15, verse 28 through 29. Here's what they said to them. This is what the council said to the early church when he thought about this Gentile church, right? And so it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon no greater burden than these essentials, right? So Paul and Barnabas are reported of this great explosion of churches in southern Galatia and around where they have traveled and so they came back and said, we, we shouldn't burden these people with Jewish pressures. And he says this, 
three, he gives about three or four things here, that you should abstain from things sacrificed to idols. It's paganism. Right off the bat, the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 says, you should abstain from things offered to idols. But here's the Corinthians now going, well, was that really for us? They're already doubting leadership from that. The next phrase was said, and from blood. Now, we remember in our series in Leviticus on, on Wednesdays that the pagan nations not only sacrificed animals, and we'll see what they did just in a moment here, but they drank that blood in order to gain life themselves from that sacrificed animal. And God said, life is in the blood. Don't do that. And so the council said, don't drink the blood. Next, it says in Acts Chapter 15, verse 29, and from things strangled. Well, Satan loves to take what God gives to his people, put a little twist on it, and give it to the pagans. So once God brought a sacrificial system to the nation of Israel, there became a sacrificial system in the pagan world. But instead of bleeding out an animal as God gave to be a picture of a coming Christ, the pagan world strangled those animals. Just pure cruelty. And so they said, don't eat those things strangled. He's saying, don't be like the pagan world. And then finally he adds one more, which Paul has addressed quite depthly in chapters 5 and 6. Keep from fornication. Fornication was part of the religious services, the religious practice of the pagan nations. And he wanted nothing, they wanted the church to have nothing to do with that fornication that would blaspheme the name of God. And then he says, the council says this, if you keep yourself from free from such things, you will do well. So in Corinth, you have the church now debating whether those instructions were really for them. You know, we're, we're knowledge. We have these great orators here. We've become wise. Is that really for us? And so they question Paul. And they questioned the authority of the leaders of the church. I mean, think about this. The Jews had been kosher. Many of them remained kosher even at that time. And yet Paul said they were free to eat of anything that God had given as long as they received it with thanksgiving. But the Gentile believers, they're living in this very pagan world. And they live with pagan families and friends that's just steeped in this religious culture. You go down to the market and everything there seems like it's on sale was offered to idols. How do we live within this pagan culture? Could they be a Christian but still fraternize with those pagan religions? They were struggling with that. And I think it's a fair question or a fair statement that they make as long as they're willing to hear the truth. And it's a good question for us. How do we handle our loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who begin to get engaged with things that the world loves that God clearly speaks against? See, Paul's going to address this all through this letter. There was also the Christian that was a weaker conscience here Paul is concerned about. You'll notice in their statement, they say, we all have knowledge. Well, wait a minute. Was that true? Maybe there was a young brother and sister there that did not know the counsel uh, in Acts 15, did not know what the Bible had spoken, what the, prop, the, what the apostles were speaking on, and, and so they were not concerned with that. So in short, the issue of food, whether it was offered to idols, 
was hotly debated in Corinth church, this opens the door to many sinful issues that Paul wants to address. Now, Paul being led by the Spirit here, he's inspired. He devotes time to this very sensitive question of Christian liberties. And he wants to get to the heart of the issue. So he quotes what they say. Notice in verse 1. And most theologians believe this is a quote probably from the letter they wrote back to Paul. We all have knowledge. Notice that in verse 1. Now Paul used the word ode, uh, Greek word for know, many times even throughout this letter. And it obviously that the Christians in Corinth, um, they were boasting on their own knowledge. Isn't it interesting? We all know. Paul, you've talked to us about knowing that you know you've spoken to Christ, you were discipled in the wilderness, you've telling us all that, but we too know there's this, there's this uh, air of arrogance that comes in this statement. And instead of saying, oh, Paul, can you help us with this situation? They say, look, we possess knowledge ourselves. He uses the word gnosis there. This, we have spiritual understanding ourselves. And really, they're truly opposing Paul in arrogance, and Paul picks up on it. Now, you can, you can, you can pick that up, and, and you can see it in that statement. Now, concerning these things, sacrifice to idols, we know that all, we all have knowledge. That's, that's their statement. And yet, that's not true. And there was probably some in Corinth who knew the Old Testament, knew the gospel well, but there was many that weren't. And, and, and when, we, when we have hills that we want to die on in our pride, pride causes us to focus on ourselves and not on those around us. And Paul knows that's happening. And that's why he is going to talk about causing a younger brother or sister to stumble. But notice that Paul's first response to the issue of Christian liberty is this. Knowledge makes arrogant, or your Bible might say puffed up, but love edifies or builds up. This is his first response. He's going to build a foundation here to deal with them and their views of stuff. And he says he wants them to know, you've come across, you've told me that you all have this knowledge, but let me tell you this, knowledge makes arrogance. And love edifies. Now, let's be clear that Paul is not against knowledge. And neither are we. In fact, he's already commended them for seeking the treasure of knowledge. In chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, he says, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So Paul has already told them that he, he appreciates the knowledge they have in Jesus Christ. And again, the Word of God never discourages proper knowledge growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you a few of my favorite passages to remind myself to keep growing. Go to Colossians chapter 1. This is probably one of my favorite texts that I use to remind myself to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. Because I want to be clear, here's what we say when Paul says, Knowledge is arrogance or puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. He is not saying that it's not important to grow in knowledge. That's, we want to make sure we're here. It's how we grow and what our purpose is, what's in our heart. 
Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Paul again says these very familiar words that he speaks to many of the churches. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now listen to this. And to ask that, ask, to ask that you may be filled, look at this, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, Paul's own prayer life for the church is that they grow in gnoskis. They grow in knowledge that's linked to the will of God, not to their will. See, a lot of people want to grow in knowledge so they can share what they know or have the right answer in the BFG class. (laughs) But do you want to grow in knowledge according to the will of God? See, this is Paul's prayer. Notice verse 10. Look at the result of this type of knowledge. So that... It's a great clause. Tells you there's a reason for this. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Is the Lord worthy of our walk? Is he concerned about how we conduct our lives in this world? See, see, Paul wants us to know truth, so we'll walk in a way that's worthy of our Lord. Notice this, to please him in how many respects? What's it say? Oh, no, come on, Scott. Marriage, parenting, job, life, everything else? Yeah, see, knowledge leads to glorifying God. This is the goal. This is what Paul has always been about. Notice bearing fruit in every good work. And then he adds this at the end of that, in increasing in the knowledge of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, start in verse 14. There's always those that are trying to pull you away with false teaching. So he begins with that in verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. These are those who want to propagate their knowledge and they've found something in the scriptures or something about God that you've never seen and um, if you don't listen to me, I'm leaving. That happens around here every once in a while. But notice how Paul reminds Timothy and the readers to be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. There's effort put in this. There's effort put into the study of God's word. Notice it says, accurately handling the word of truth. See, God wants us to accurately be diligent, put effort into it, to rightly divide. The idea of the word is to cut straight, not around things you don't like, so that you grow in knowledge. Look at verse 16. This is how you're going to avoid this stuff, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene to see this is knowledge that's full of pride versus knowledge based in the love of a god it spreads like great gangrene and you know what gangrene does you start losing limbs and that happens within the church when someone comes in and their their knowledge is not based in the love of god not broken and controlled by the gospel of the lord jesus christ not overwhelmed that he would die for them and let alone know him before the foundations of the world but yet they have some kind of soapbox some kind of issue they want to proclaim they cause gangrene in a church and the shepherds 
watch out for them. They're called wolves. And he even names some men, right? Hymenius and Philetus here. Men who have gone astray, verse 18, from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already passed. They were taking hope away from the believer because they had come up with something different than the apostles. See, this is why the Bible says for us to be diligent in our study. One more passage that I dearly love is 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Love those. He's sent, but he's a, he's a lifer, right? He's, he's, he's forever the slave of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith that's the same kind of ours, don't you love that statement? Peter didn't say, hey, I got something better than you do. If you guys just line up underneath me, you're going to be okay. Some churches made him the pope. He says, look, I got the same faith as you. You know how I got it? Look at verse, end of verse 1. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how come I'm righteous. Not because of who I am, not because I was a disciple of Jesus, not because of all those things. I got it from Jesus, who is both God and Savior. What a statement. And so he's able to give this great blessing, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our, and Jesus our Lord seeing that it is divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So in Christ we have everything we need for salvation and the daily stuff. Now notice this. Through true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we start understanding this through true knowledge. Notice that little adverb put on there, right? True knowledge. Not man-centered, not man-driven, not pride-driven knowledge, but true knowledge that leads to the glory and excellence of the one who called us. Verse 4, For by these things he has granted to us the precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you have become partakers of the divine nature. And we have to stop there because you have to figure out what that means. Through the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, by that great blessing of faith plunged into your heart, you now are partakers of, of the triune God. You go, well, how is that? Well, Christ first is my Savior, God is my Father, and the Spirit indwells me. That's pretty divine partaking, isn't it? I am now a new family member in the family of God. I partake of all of that. We, we resemble the character of God. We have a fellowship with God, and we have His Spirit that lives within us. And look what the result of this knowledge of this great faith that God plunged into our heart. We escape the corruption that's in this world by lust. Isn't that hope? You don't have to give in to pornography and godless immorality. You don't have to give in to that stuff. You're a child of the king now. And then he says this, and this is a great list, and I don't have time. I've got to get back to the text here. But he says, now for this reason also, apply all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. So there's something very important I want you to see here. He doesn't say, supply your own faith. Isn't that interesting? You know why? Because he gave you faith. So you don't faith your way to God. Faith is a gift from God. It's just like grace and faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is a gift from God. So he says, to that faith that I've given you, that God has given us, supply 
supply this moral excellence. Listen, brother and sister, if you're struggling with a lack of moral excellence, you're not leaning upon the faith God gave you. We can beat immorality. We can live godly representatives of the Savior because of the faith God gave us. But notice that leads into the next building block, and these are beautiful building blocks in a Christian's life, and I won't go into all of them, but notice the last, the last part, verse 5. In your moral, moral excellence, add knowledge. See, knowledge is such a key, and, and so when we turn back to this text, Paul is not against knowledge. I, I want to make sure you're hearing me on that. Knowledge is extremely important. And so growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul, excuse me, Peter ends his last epistle with is, is the sacred food of the believer, right? Catholicism believes that you get Jesus through taking the table. No, no, we already have Jesus. We remember what he has done. Our sacred food is the word of God, the bread of God. That's what strengthens us, right? And so this sacred food is what we we build our spiritual muscle and our tendons, and it strengthens us to walk in this evil world. Things are not getting better out there if you have not noticed. Did you pick up your Bible at all this week? Did you think biblically about anything that's going on in this world? See, God gives us the strength to grow in our knowledge. Spurgeon said this, he says, you will generally notice that when a believer gets near to God, reads his words, he says this, he tastes the unseen joys and eats the bread that was made in heaven. All the feast of earth, all the amusement of earth, all its glory seems flat, stale, and unprofitable compared to God's word. Oh, strengthen yourself, brother and sister, and read God's word. It's been God's word that we understand he chose us. He created us, he convicted us, he converted us, and he built his people through the God's word. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, said this, Study hard, for the well is deep and your brain is shallow. Study hard. Grow in the grace and knowledge of God's word and God's truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, down through church history, we've learned a lot. In the first century here that we're studying here to the fifth century, new Christians um, were led to church membership, and they were, they were baptized, and then they were instructed in the truths of Christianity. Colossians, Hebrews calls these the elementary principles of the truth of God's word, right? When you move to the 6th century through really almost the 16th century, um, it's hard, as we study church history, we have a hard time finding the church in that, that section there. But it was really given to the head of the home in a lot of the ways. The head of the family during those dark ages taught truth to the children and so forth and should continue to do that. But then you have the Reformation come around and it, it brought numerous writings and catechisms. Martin Luther in 1529 wrote his larger and then his shorter catechism to instruct believers how to not be ignorant of basic teachings of the scriptures. In 1536, John Calvin composed a catechism to educate people in Geneva, not just once a week, but every day. He put out a catechism so you could read it every day and grow in the grace and knowledge of God's word. In 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism became a standard issue guide for the churches in Germany, in Netherlands, and even in America. 
In the 1600s, 46 through 47, in England, the Westminster theologians composed a shorter and larger catechism to help educate people who are coming to the church, getting saved out of the world, and turning from Catholicism. And they wrote a, uh, they wrote a catechism to help them understand that it wasn't by works. It was by the faithfulness of God. So down through the centuries, the Bible-believing church has been discipled. Has been discipled. This is what we do, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the centuries, the church has been imparting biblical knowledge. Problem is, at times, some of this imparting of biblical knowledge has become just an intellectual exercise. And that's where the church became stagnant. Look, knowledge can be glorifying, but a church will stagnate, listen to this, if love does not meet, excuse me, if knowledge does not meet divine love. When you study your Bible, if you don't have a grasp of the divine love of God, all you're going to do is become arrogant, most likely. Divine love opens up the breath of who God is in his knowledge. And so today we actually see the reverse happening in our churches. Now we have these lovey-dovey churches that don't teach the Bible, right? We, we have churches that are obsessed with some superficial love. And they want to integrate the world's philosophy. Church in America right now is integrating the world's view of marriage and gender into their church. When God is explicitly clear on those issues and many, many others. And so now we have a church that has rejected truth. They've not passed it on to the next generation. When I grew up, you were, there was emphasis on memorizing the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes it was like a little rabbit's foot, right? Say this before you go to bed. I know in the South there was battles over the Ten Commandments on the courthouse steps. And yet often biblical theology and who God was taught verse by verse through the Bible failed in our churches. So God is not against knowledge. Paul is not against knowledge. But the church today has become scripturally illiterate. Here at Riverbend this is not an issue, I don't think, I, I I think I can say that with somewhat humble confidence. If you come to Riverbend, we're going to push you or encourage you to go to Groaning Christ. We want you to hear those elementary principles as Pastor Bobby teaches through those faithfully. And when we say elementary, don't think you're going in there for first grade language. The truth of God's word will be elevated in there. We have one-on-one -on -one discipling that we want you to be a part of. Sit down with someone who loves you and cares for you and wants to one-on-one -on -one help you grow and know the Savior who died for you. We have a soul care ministry that now expands to two or three or four guys or gals to sit and learn to read the Bible yourself and make an interpretation and apply it to your life. Imagine that. Not just listening to the pastor all the time speak, but being able to now look at and read a passage of Scripture. This is soul care. You should get in this. Um, and, and read that and say, I think this is what God says. I'm observing these things and now make an interpretation because there's a single interpretation there and he's not hiding it from you. And then you can apply it to your life and the three or four of you in that circle can engage in that great conversation. But we don't end there as a church. 
We're dedicated to discipleship. Well, we moved to DTP, which is a discipleship training program. It's a one-year program that's a little bigger group, more classroom style, and, and, but intense on knowing our God, how he saved us and how he set us apart, how he continues to grow us in the image of Christ. From there, you can take Bible college classes and seminary classes. You can get in a BFG. You can go to biblical counseling, and there's countless Bible studies. And we pray that our staff and our volunteers are growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to help you along with that. I'm making this hard push, if you're not tall, that don't sit back and just take in preaching all the time and do nothing on your own to be discipled. See, this is where your knowledge will lead you into deception. But back to verse 1. That was a little bit of a rabbit trail there. But back to verse 1, Paul is stating that knowledge leads to arrogancy. should be absent from the Christian life, right? We should be known as Christians who love. And a Christian must begin and end with the love of God, right? It's the love of God that got you saved, right? He loved you before the foundations of the world. He knew you. He drew drew you to himself. He loved you. And when you get done studying the Bible, you should come away and say, my God loves me. That's correct interpretation. He loves me. And see, that protects us from knowledge that without the love of God turns to arrogancy and puffs up. Chapter 13, Paul writes a whole chapter on love to this church. It it confuses me why the charismatic church want to use this as a passage for their doctrine when they can't even get love right. So he says, look, love is never arrogant. It's just the opposite. Love does not tear down. Love builds up. That's what Paul's trying to teach us here. Is your knowledge, listen to this, is your knowledge of God in submission to the divine love of God? It's a good question. We have seminary students in here, seminary profs. We have new believers. We have a whole range of people who are Christians in this room and are online. Is your knowledge in submission to the divine love of God? Anytime I open my Bibles, I begin to study, I try to remind myself, I write notes on the topic to remind myself, God is love. Helps me preach better. (laughs) Helps me remember to apply those things to my life. Second thought, i got to put it on the pedal a little bit here. God exposes prideful knowledge and its fruitless value. Look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Well, Paul continues to respond to this Corinth letter here, and he reveals this attitude of arrogance here, and he shows a contrast here between knowledge and love, and Paul places the emphasis on the verb here. Notice the verb supposes, or your Bible might say imagines here, in a way to reveal their prideful glorification of knowledge. That's what people do. They love to glorify knowledge. And this is what they're doing. And we've seen that this prideful pursuit of knowledge has caused all kinds of problems. Factions in the church weakened the gospel. They saw preaching as foolishness of Paul's. And so now he says, look, knowledge will be done away with in chapter 13 if it's not based in the love of God. So the apostle's working hard here. He's working hard for people to understand that knowledge by itself limits the opportunity to be used of God here. Now, 
Once again here, I want you to consider this. The Corinth church felt like they had arrived. And once somebody feels like they have arrived, now they become a dangerous. <laughs> Recently we received some letters as an elders from some person that was looking at our church. And it was clear that they thought they had arrived in areas and they needed to teach us something. And we were willing to learn. If we, you know, we were trying to interact and so forth. But pretty soon you begin to realize that there, there's an arrogance there and there's a frustration. There's somebody who's upset with us because we have not risen to their understanding of knowledge. And it always creates hardship. I, I love Romans chapter 11, verse 33, because there it tells us that we are to keep searching. Search the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable is his ways. And the more I study the Bible, a passage that I preached many times, last week that passage that I preached, I've preached that passage several times, and I learned so much more from that sermon. It's unfathomable. You keep dipping down into that well, and you keep learning. So notice what Paul says in this. He says, he has not yet known as he ought to know. There at the end of verse 2. See, that does not refer to the lack of content, but the lack of real knowledge, what love gives. Love gives real knowledge of God. You want to be a scholar? Love God. Love his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be a scholar. Now, you say, well, Scott, where do we find true knowledge? Well, how does that begin? Well, Proverbs over and over says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? The Hebrew idea is that there's a, there's a path to God, and it comes through reverential awe of God. When you think that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place so you won't perish but have eternal life, that builds a reverential awe for God, and now the scriptures begin to open up to you. And we always come to the word of God the gospel. John Calvin said this, he said, the foundation of true knowledge is personal knowledge of God, personal knowledge of God. We are able to recognize such knowledge when we see grace, humility, integrity, and obedience at work in our lives. See, the love of God humbles you, doesn't it? I hope you're all still in the space where you go, I can't believe he chose me for salvation. I mean, I hope you're still there. I mean, let me say it this way. I hope you're still amazed at grace. See, now you get to grow. See, a true believer recognizes his or her limitations. You, you know your struggles. Do you know your struggles? Do you know where your sin issues are? You, you know that limits you, right? But yet you have a God who loves you anyway. And it's the love of God that brings you and leads you to repentance and so that now you can learn from him and grow from him because he leads you to repentance because he loves you. And he does not want that broken fellowship. And so now what you do instead of fighting him, you want to know him and you humble yourself before his mighty hand and he leads you out of that sin. See, that's how knowledge is led by love. In a sense, look, Paul's trying to urge these Corinthians to re-examine their perspective of knowledge, isn't he? Without a realization that all knowledge is derived from God through Christ, that person remains in this dead kind of prideful state. Now, true knowledge has a spiritual reality to it, doesn't it? 
But I don't think Paul is saying here in this verse that knowledge is wrong. We've already discussed that. It's essential for life. But if without connecting it to the love of God, it's, it's going to fail. Third, the infinite value of being known and divinely loved by God. Look at verse 3. Oh, I love this verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. What a massive statement. See, Paul's teaching the Corinth that human wisdom is extremely temporary in this passage. I think that's what verse 3 is saying, without saying it, right? Your human knowledge is extremely temporary, but the divine love of God is eternal. In fact, the divine love of God is going to bring you into his presence for all of eternity where you'll learn of him for all of eternity. And you want to get hung up on your earthly knowledge. So I think Paul can perfectly blend these now two concepts that he first showed in contrast. Now he brings these two concepts of knowledge and love together. Separately, they cause all kinds of problems, right? You have, a, you have this church that just loves, but they don't know who they love. They're, and so now they're led astray. Or you have a church that's all knowledge without love, and they're arrogant and mean and, and unkind, and us four no more, right? But now he brings them together. And out of it comes what God entails, this church to be one who knows God and is loved by God. See, when we begin to love like God, things change. When you love like God, you forgive. A lot of problems go away when you forgive. Maybe that other person doesn't forgive, you know, accept your forgiveness or whatever, but you are free now. I mean, a lot of things happen when you begin to love like God, if you think about it. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. The first fruit really is maybe the umbrella fruit to all of them is love. That's, that's where the Spirit leads us to love. Love now allows us to correctly speak the truth correctly, right? I've always said this. If you don't speak the truth in love, it ceases to be the truth because that's not how God intended it. So now, because I've experienced the love of God and I come to doctrine and truth or I have to confront someone I love, I can speak truth because God has taught me to love. Now the message becomes as God intended it. Look at this little phrase at the end of verse 3 here. I love this phrase. He is known by him. When Paul was in Galatia, um, he had a lot of problems there. As he writes this letter back to him, he says in chapter 4, verse 9, and here comes, now listen to this verse because there's an inspired correction. He says this, but now that you have come to know God, I mean, a lot of times, and I think it's appropriate, we'll say, hey, can you tell me how you came to know Jesus? But Paul corrects himself by the inspiration of the Spirit. He goes, or rather, to be known by God. So tell me about how you came to know God, how God made you known to him. See, he makes that inspired correction. And I think that's amazing. Because what that does is teach us the depth of God's love. And the problem with the free will movement that's been around forever is it's an argument full of arrogancy. You say, why is free will an argument of arrogancy when it comes to salvation? Because it places the emphasis on knowledge and choice of the sinful person. In fact, it leaves an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient God without knowledge and power to change the will and heart of the sinful person. Right? It's God. Well, I, I can't do anything until Bob decides to choose me. I know I created the world in seven days, six days. I know i got all things in my control. 
but I don't have bottom control. The love of God says, my God knew me before foundations of the world, drew me to himself. I had nothing to do with it. Why would he do that? Only a loving God who loves perfectly would do that for such a sinner. See, it magnifies the love of God. That he would draw me to himself. He knew me. He is, I'm known by him. So he's the initiator, not man. I love that. The Apostle Paul, throughout his epistles, describes nothing to human achievement, does he? So our love and knowledge is the action of divine love and knowledge, right? That's what we gain. We, we gain love and knowledge through the action of the one who divinely loves and has knowledge. Now, one last word on this here. Look at this word known. It's a perfect tense and it's passive. That's beautiful. That may not mean as much to you, but let me explain it. That means the language here in this verse teaches us that God, God acted and his actions took place at a particular time, but have present tense and eternal value. God knew you before the foundations of the world. There's the present time. There's some point in that time God knew you. And he drew you to himself, and he holds you. He won't let you go. He holds you right now, and he holds you for all of eternity. See, Paul says, let that drive your knowledge. The Bible says that we love him because he loved us first. We love him because he loved us first. And you say, Scott, what does that mean? What did he do? How do I understand that? Look, now, believer, in his love you know he redeemed you. That means he purchased you. So he, he, he went to the slavery block to get you out of there before you knew what he was doing. He redeemed you. He, in his love, this is how he knows us first, he promised to give us a home even before we were his, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus is gone and prepares a place and he's coming back for those who love him, right? And so, so he has a promise for us. He, he has a promise that he'll never stop loving us. In his love, he gifts us with this grace and faith. He gives us the word of God and, and the spirit of God. All of this tells us that he loves us, doesn't it? He promises to provide and meet your needs in his perfect timing, not ours. And he'll keep you secure. Well, lastly, I just want to close with just a, another statement of just some application. The believer's treasure that is found in the divine love of God. Six things I just wrote down quickly as I thought about how the love of God is manifested in my life. The love, God's love is displayed in us. And we see the glory of God through that. So God's love in us displays his glory. You say, well, how does it do that? Well, he has the power to take dead people and make them alive. <laughs> I think that's real important. I mean, that shows his power. He makes dead people alive. He makes sinners blameless. He gives eternal redemption. So God's love is, is in us, and it displays his glory. Second, God's love is, is in us, and it weakens and even removes sinful desires. I've told many people in counseling, you're not going to beat this thing until you fall deeper in love with God. This thing's going to kick you all over this life till you fall deeper in love with God. That's how you beat sin. You, become, you let the love of God well up within you. 
Third, God's love in us longs for joyful fellowship with a loving God and his children. One of the ways you know that you don't have God's love in you, you don't desire to be here. (laughs) You don't desire the family of God. Church is difficult. You don't want to come. You you don't want to meet people. You don't want to be involved. I'll just watch online. I'll never show up to church. See, the love of God is demonstrating this that you want to be in his family. You think he saved you for eternity to fellowship with him and his entire family. Show me a person who doesn't want to go to church or be involved, and I'll show you a person who probably doesn't understand the love of God. Fourth, God's love in us causes us to delight and treasure in his word. So many people have recently said they've moved here from all over states, and they said, we found you online, and we could see that you guys loved God's word. It was important. One family recently said, when we came to church to visit, we watched all these people carrying their Bibles into church. We knew we had to give this place a shot. See, God's love makes us treasure his word. We we actually believe he's talking to us through our Bibles. (laughs) Right? Because he loves us. Fifth, God's love in us has the power to drive everything we do. Marriage, children. Jobs, retirement, add the list. The love of God has the power to drive everything we do. And then finally, God's love in us is a tool to draw others to know him. God's love in us is a tool to draw others to know him. 1 John 4, 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What do you think is more appealing to the lost, prideful arrogance or the knowledge of the love of God seen in a relationship between people? Another thing that comments have been made to me lately is we said, we walked into your church, we were warmly greeted, and we could tell the church loved each other. That was important to them. See, this is where the love of God gets manifested in our lives. Oh, what an infinite value we have in the love of God. We're not going to have a closing song. I'm just a little late. Bobby took up all my time. Um, uh, But I do want to ask you to stand with me and close in a benediction that I've written. And certainly this will sum up what we've said here today. Oh, gracious and loving Heavenly Father, In your love, you chose us before the foundations of the world. In your love, you rescued undeserved sinners from certain eternal death. In your love, you caused us to be holy and blameless. In your love, you have made us your own children. And in your love, you have promised us an eternity filled with your joy and your love. O loving Father, help us reflect your love as we grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may your love motivate all that we do as we grow in your knowledge. Amen.